Um, we're basically looking at what is probably one of the most climactic moments in the whole Old Testament uh, for the people of God, for Israel. Um, as God parts the waters, we all of us are very aware of it. If we haven't read it, we've seen it in a movie somewhere where God parts the waters and the people walk through. And God delivers his people from slavery and sets them free. And uh, basically, in this passage, we have what I would argue is the key to understanding how to relate to God, um, to understanding how to relate to God on a daily basis and in just daily life. Um, how do we come before God? How do we know him? How do we experience his presence? And, uh, and this, the key to this isn't just found in this passage. It's all throughout scripture. But here it is, I think, as, as clear as you can possibly see it. Um, so if you don't remember, basically God has uh, sent Moses to, to tell Pharaoh to let his people go. He, he uh, poured out his power and judgment on the Egyptians through the ten plagues, and finally Pharaoh said, get out, you've got to leave. And so the, uh, the Israelites left, and last week we looked at how God led them into, began to, began to lead them out of Egypt um, into the wilderness, and he didn't take them the, the short way through Philistine territory, but he took them towards the Red Sea, towards a dead end. And um, since then, at the beginning of chapter 14, which we're not going to read, um, God kind of takes them in a, in a meandering route. He kind of like leads them to turn back, and it, it, it gives the Egyptians the idea that they don't really know what they're doing. They don't know, wh know where they're going. They're just kind of wandering, and the Egyptians are kind of encouraged to chase after them and to say, oh, no, we can actually bring them back. We made a mistake. That's what Pharaoh thinks. I made a mistake, and we're going to take him back. We're going to go get him. And so Pharaoh brings his army and his chariots, and, and they begin pursuing Israelites, and, and this is what happens next. I'm starting in verse 10 of chapter 14. Listen to God's word. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to, bring to, to us and bring us out, out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone, that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you will, shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you and you have only to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night with, without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went, into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, his horsemen. 
And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and, and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the hosts of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power of the Lord that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Let's pray. Father, we pray now that as we think about these verses, uh, we think about this passage, that you would help us to be silent, that you would silence our hearts, that we would hear you, that we would see you, that we would fear you, and that we would believe in you. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So it's, it's hard sometimes to be a spectator. Have you ever experienced that in your life? It's hard to be a spectator. It's, it's really hard to just have to sit and watch sometimes. I've experienced this a um, couple, couple different ways that I thought of immediately. Once, um, one way is when I used to watch my kids play sports and I wasn't coaching. I was just sitting in the stands and watching the game and, and I had no power to control anything. I couldn't, you know, I, I wasn't the coach so I couldn't tell the kids what to do. I couldn't put people in or take them out when I wanted to. I couldn't control what my kids are doing on the field and it's just frustrating, you know. So I remember watching the high school soccer games just being like, ah, you know, such a helpless feeling. I remember another time a few years ago when there was a, a really bad snowstorm right after Christmas. I don't know if you guys remember that. There was a lot of snow, and, and I was just like sick as a dog. I was so sick. And I was so sick that I could hardly even get out of bed. But there's all the snow just pouring down. And usually the boys often come out and help to clear the snow, but I usually kind of take the lead and I go use the snowblower and get it started and, and snow blow the, the driveway and everything. And so I'm like struggling to get out of bed. I'm like, I'm going to do it. And then Kim's like yelling at me, you can't get out of bed, you know, you're sick. So I, and, and I couldn't fight her because I was so sick. So I just stayed in bed. And Kim had to go outside and struggle to get the snowblower started and then snow blow the driveway. And all I could do was watch through the window pane, you know, as I'm sick, just being like, feeling like so useless, so helpless, so unproductive. I mean, that's, that's what happens when a lot of times when we're forced to be spectators, when we're forced to just watch others do stuff. It can be really hard. I mean, because we often feel like we have to pull our own weight. Um, we often want to be in control and, and try to exert some, some influence or control over whatever we're watching, right? It's hard to be a spectator sometimes, um, we, we desperately sometimes feel the need to, to influence the events or the outcome with our efforts. Um, to be a spectator is to be put in a position where you're helpless, where you are completely unproductive. There are times when that being a spectator is enjoyable, but sometimes it can be really frustrating when we feel like we, we want to, you know, help um, 
In Exodus 14, God has led the Israelites to a place where they're left with no options, right? He's led them to the Red Sea. And they've, they've come to this dead end. The Red Sea is in front of them. The, the Egyptian army is pursuing them with all of their chariots, this, this unstoppable, powerful army that they cannot stand against. And they're put into a place, God has brought them to a place where they are helpless, where they can do nothing but watch what God does for them. Right? He brings them to a place where, he, where all they can do is watch God fight for them. That's what God says he's going to do, right? When in verse 14, the Lord will fight for you. The Lord will fight for you. Actually, it's mentioned another time. Later on, the Egyptians even notice this. It's so clear to them. The Egyptians say, the Lord is fighting for them. And that's all the Israelites can do is just watch, be spectators of what God does for them to rescue them, to save them, to give them salvation, to deliver them, to set them free. All they can do is watch. But before they can watch, before they're able to actually see what God is doing, first he tells them to do something. He tells them to shut their mouths. Did you notice that in verse 14? It's kind of funny. Some of you guys find it funny. Verse 14, he says, the Lord will fight for you. You only have to be silent. Why does he tell them you only have to be silent? Well, it's because they've been talking, right? When they, see the, when they see the Egyptians pursuing them, when they're overwhelmed with fear and panic, what's the first thing they do? They start rambling on and on again. They start complaining. They start judging God for taking them into the wilderness, for delivering them from, from Egypt, right? They, they're, they're, their lips drip with sarcasm. Is it, is it that there, there aren't enough graves in Egypt that you had to bring us out here? You know, they, they, they start to kind of revision history. I mean, there's no place so far in Exodus where the Israelites ever said, God, don't save us. Don't save us. Leave us here. But all of a sudden they're saying, wait, don't you remember we said don't save us? We said leave us in Egypt. We want to serve the Egyptians. And so as you're reading this, you're, you're meant to be like, what are they doing? But, but they're, just, they're just rambling. They're, they're, there's just all of this noise coming out of their mouths, out of their minds, out of their hearts. And God says, guys, just shut it. Be quiet. Be silent. Because as you are consumed with, with all of this noise in your hearts, as you, as you complain, as you grumble, as you, as you second guess what I am doing, you're going to miss what I'm doing. You're not going to be able to see what I'm doing. Because that's, that's what happens when we're so busy talking, we, we are incapable of receiving input. Don't you find that to be the case? Have you, have you ever dealt with a, a child that, you know, we, we, sometimes we, we try to explain to a child, um, you know, why what they're doing is maybe not the best thing for them to be doing. And they're so busy defending themselves and arguing with us and saying that, no, no, I didn't do this, that they can't listen to what we're saying. And I think that's what happens to us when we are faced with, with life that is overwhelming or we're faced with, with things that are, are causing us to be afraid, with problems, our first instinct is to just generate a ton of noise, to just complain, to second guess, to, uh, to blame others, to criticize, to judge. And God says, you guys, you guys need to just stop and be silent. You need to quiet your hearts so that you can see me and see what I'm going to do. 
and see what I have done. It's a good practice for us to get into, is to, to spend time being quiet in our lives. Uh, very few of us really enjoy silence, right? How many of us really, uh, most of us, silence makes us uncomfortable. Makes us really uncomfortable. How would you feel if we just spent the rest of the sermon doing this? <laughs> that might be good for us. God says, be quiet to the Israelites. Be quiet. Because in the midst of your just noise of, of how you're, you're so upset and dissatisfied with what your life looks like right now, you're going to miss me. You're going to miss seeing me here, now, fight for you. And that's, I think, what this passage is mostly about, is that he just wants the Israelites to, 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 to be spectators, to see, to watch what he does for them, that he fights for them. He wants to see that God fights for his people. The idea of sight is, is all throughout this passage if, if, as we were reading it. Did you notice that? Uh, right at the very beginning, he talks about how the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, first of all, right? They lifted up their eyes and they saw the Egyptians. And then in verse 13, Moses says to the people, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord. And then right after that, he says, the Egyptians whom, the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The idea of sight is, is throughout this passage. At the very end of the passage, what does it say? Verse 30 and 31. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel did what? They saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Verse 31. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people fear the Lord, and they believe in the Lord and in his servant Moses. I think that's a big part of what, what he's encouraging us to see here. That to... To be in a relationship with God begins and ends with seeing what God does for us rather than focusing on what we do. It's about seeing what he does for us and what he has done for us. Look at all the ways that God fights for his people here, that, that God encourages the people to notice, to look, and to see what he does. Right? First, he protects them as he... As he the, he works um, as, as he moves with a pillar of cloud and fire between the Egyptians and the Israelites to protect them, to keep the Egyptians from attacking them. And then while that happens, he, he pushes the water back. He, he, he drives the, the water back and parts the waters. I don't know if you, you, you watch some programs on National Geographic, they you know, like to come up with natural explanations how this can happen. This is not natural. This is supernatural what God does here. 
He talks about how the, the Israelites end up walking through on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. The word for wall is talking about, like, it's the same word that's used for city walls back in that time. So it's, it's, a, it's a high wall of water on each, each side of them. This is something supernatural that only God could possibly do. And he, and he provides an escape route for them, and they, and they go through on the dry ground, but then he, that's not all he does. He continues to fight for them as, as the Egyptians pursue them into it. And what does it say? It says that, that God looks down at them, and then he threw the Egyptian forces into panic in verse 24. And he clogs their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. Even, you know, as I said before, the Egyptians, it was obvious to them, look, God is fighting for them. We can't defeat them because God is fighting for them. Even the Egyptians see it. But that's not where he finishes. He, he ends up throwing the Egyptians, in verse 27, into the midst of the sea so that not one of them is left. He utterly defeats the Egyptians. Utterly, absolutely defeats them. Not a single one is left. God fights for them. He does everything for them. All the Israelites do is watch and walk. That's all they do here. And God sets them free. He saves them. He rescues them. As I've mentioned before, this is, this is the defining event in the history of the Israelites. And it becomes, as you continue reading through the Bible, as you get into the New Testament, as you look at the life of Jesus and, and the things that he said and the things that he did, Jesus encourages us, and, and the New Testament writers encourages us, or encourage us to see in the, the work of, of God rescuing his people from Egypt, in the Exodus, kind of hints in a picture of what Jesus does for us. Jesus, the, the New Testament encourages us to see Jesus as the greater Moses, as the one who leads his people out of slavery into freedom. But Jesus doesn't lead us out of physical slavery. Jesus leads us out of a slavery that is much Worse, even, slavery to our sin, the power and judgment of our sin. That is what Jesus rescues us from. He leads us out of slavery to sin, to guilt, to shame, and to the power of our sin. And how are we to escape? How are we to escape? Well, as you read through the Bible, as you read in the New Testament, this, this, the same pattern is here. God says, your job is to watch what I have done for you. Your job is to see that you are helpless, that you cannot escape the tyranny of your sin. You cannot escape the judgment of your sin. You cannot escape the power of your sin in your own life. And the only way for you to escape, the only way for you to experience freedom is through me fighting for you. It's through Jesus fighting for you. Think about all that Jesus has done to fight for us, to set us free from our sin. He entered our world and, and allowed himself to, to, to endure the limitations of, of humanity and the suffering of humanity, surrounded by sin. And yet he did not sin himself. He, he endured temptation from Satan and was obedient and faithful. He lived his entire life in obedience to his father, fighting every day to be faithful. And he succeeded. And, and finally, he allowed himself to be, to be arrested and then hung on a cross and killed. And when he died on the cross, that is where he, he triumphed over our sin. 
It is at the cross that just as God's victory here over the Egyptians is final and absolute, not one of the Egyptians is left, God's victory over our sin at the cross is final and absolute. Not one of Satan's accusations against you is left. We are set free, absolutely free from our sin. As I said, from the power of our sin that it has over us, from the guilt and the shame. We are set free from our sin because Jesus has fought for us and he encourages us to watch, to see what he has done and to rest in what he has done rather than trying to deal with it ourselves because we can't. We can't. And so you see this pattern throughout the Bible and you see it clearly here that, that if we want to enter into freedom of, of knowing God and walking with God, the only way that we can get there is by seeing what he does for us rather than us trying to, to do it on our own, rather than us trying really hard to be better people, rather than us trying really hard to, to, to be the people God wants us to be. We need to, to watch what he has done for us and just rest in it. The last thing I want to just mention is, is important, though. God fights for us, and we're called to see what he does, but in order to experience our freedom on a daily basis, we need to step towards what he has won. We need to step towards what he's won. God, God has won the battle against the Egyptian. He has parted the waters. He has provided a way for them to be free. But they still have to do something, right? Verse 19, he says, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. They still have to put one foot in front of the other and walk through the Red Sea. Walk on the dry ground. They need to step by step leave their life of slavery behind and take hold of the life that God has rescued them to. The freedom that God has given them, they need to walk towards it. They need to, to, to take hold of it. And all I want to say here is that, that God has fought for you in Christ to set you free, to give you a life of freedom and joy but the problem that we often experience is, is that we don't put one foot in front of the other and take hold of that freedom. We don't enjoy that freedom. We just kind of continue on with the same lives we've always lived. I, think of, uh, I was thinking of a movie, I don't, I don't know if any of you guys have seen the movie Room, and I'm not sure if I'm even remembering this right, so this might not even be a very good illustration. I might just be making this up. But uh, in this movie, Room, it's, it's a true story about this, this woman who was uh, abducted when she was a teenager, and she was kept in this shed in, the, in this guy's backyard, and she ended up um, having a child, and, and they were living there, and that's, that's all they knew was this little room. And he kept them captive there for, for a really long time. I'm not sure how long they were there, but finally they escape. They finally escape. And they're free. And the, the authorities abducted the guy and everything, and, and they're brought back to, to live with her parents. But even after they come back, and, and, they're, and they're now living in this you know, nice house in the suburbs, I think there's one scene where, where like the, the, her son ends up still like wanting to sleep in the closet. You know? He'd be sleeping in this beautiful, like, big plush bed, and he just wants to sleep on the floor in the closet because he can't let go of what was familiar. 
And I think that's what happens to us, that, that God says, I have sent my son to set you free by dying for you, by rising from the dead. I have given you my spirit, as we read earlier in Romans 8, and yet we are just way too attached to our familiar, comfortable lives. Our lives that, that are defined by our failures and our sin and our pessimism and our cynicism. We continue to live as if we are enslaved to our regrets, to our self-pity. I look at my life and, and I let who I think I am be shaped by, by my sin, my failures, my flaws. And I don't live with the joy that God wants me to live with as a man who is free to know him and to walk with him and to be loved by him. I don't live my life with the freedom and joy of one that has been rescued. I think part of the problem is, is that the, the reason that, that we don't embrace this new life of freedom is because to, to walk towards freedom is going to require that our lives change. Our lives aren't going to stay the same. And that's scary, I think, for a lot of us. It's, it's a lot easier to just kind of cling to the, to the old, anemic way we live, um, way that we look at life, low expectations, and, and, and instead step out and say, God, how do you want my life to be radically different? How do you want my life to be radically different? How do you want my life to be, be full, my, my perspective on life to be full of hope? and surrender to how you might want to change the way that I'm living or what I'm living for. Because that is a big part of why God has set them free. He has set them free not to just kind of wander around in the wilderness, but he's set them free to, to live in devotion to him and to worship him and to serve him. And this is the problem. The pull is strong. The pull is strong. Some of us might be reluctant to live in the freedom Christ has bought for us because it means we have to leave our familiar life behind. It means relating to life. It means relating to people, to God, differently. And in the midst of it all is joy. Joy that we are no longer slaves. Joy that we are no longer controlled by our, uh, or limited by our sinful self-centeredness. We are no longer limited by our little kingdoms that we've always been pursuing. And God has brought us into a kingdom that is huge where he rules. And this is the thing. It, it takes an intentional step by us. Each morning as we wake up in the morning, when we get out of bed, our first step needs to be towards freedom. Towards freedom and away from our slavery. Towards freedom of, of believing that God is with me and that he loves me and that he's satisfied with me and that I... I am not going to be judged for my failures today, for my mistakes today, for my limitations. God delights in me, and, and it, it's, it's, it's an intentional step towards living into a life that is, that is really life-giving because and he's present to work for me and, and in me and for my good. And that's what God wants us. He's set us free, but he wants us to live in that freedom. Romans 8 reminds us, you've got the spirit in you that says, I love you. 
know it, believe it. And, 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 and widen your vision to what I want to do through you and in you. So see what God has done and step towards the freedom that he has won for you. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for what you have done, that in Christ we are free. We are no longer slaves. Father, we pray that you would help us. It's, it's so easy for us to see our enemies as those people out there who are uh, destroying our world, those people out there who believe things that are different than us, uh, those people around us that make my life more difficult. Help us, Father, to see that our greatest enemy is in our own heart. And you have won the battle through the work of your son, Jesus. Father, we pray that you would help us to, to live out the freedom that you have won for us, to know that we are your children, to live in the freedom and security that that brings, and to live radically different lives for you. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.